not, but... Oh, it did. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, here I am, just standing here looking around. Glad you're here tonight. Uh, we are going to continue our study of the book of Esther. Or I guess technically we're going to start studying Esther. We've been kind of leading up to that uh, the last uh, few weeks. Uh, but we are going to uh, give a, an introduction to the book and then uh, probably get into chapter 1 tonight. <clears throat> Let's begin, as we always do, by uh, approaching God in prayer and seeking His blessing on our class tonight. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are grateful that uh, You have uh, continued uh, to be good to us in, uh, in so many ways. Thankful for uh, our uh, health and for uh, this, uh, this facility that we have to assemble in and Thankful for opportunities to study your word and thankful for the blessings of forgiveness that we have in Christ. Thankful for the church. Thankful for uh, your love and compassion toward us. Pray that you would bless our study. Pray that you would bless uh, the other classes that are meeting and pray that we would uh, say and do things that would bring you honor and glory not only tonight in our class, but in everything that we do in life. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, if you've been here the last, um, what, three sessions, we kind of embarked on an introduction uh, to the book of Esther, um, or an introduction to our study, but... It was really more of a, a brief topical study of the providence of God. And it's, it's an introduction to Esther because that's really the major theme that, that lies beneath the events that we're going to study as we work ourselves through the text. Uh, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, God's activity in His world, God's plan for the redemption of man and how he has worked out that plan to his glory throughout history. Uh, and so we had, you know, we looked at a lot of passages to identify providence, to distinguish it from other concepts. We, uh, last time, uh, we talked about um, uh, free will, what the Bible says about the free will of, of man and how that, uh, <clears throat> how that meshes with God's uh, God's sovereignty, and so those those were all. I, I think, if not if not necessary, at least helpful uh, to undergird the study of the Book of Esther, uh, because of the major conflict that happens in Esther and how God resolves that. And we'll see that more and more as we make our way through the book. But let's let's talk about the book itself before we actually start looking at uh, chapter one. So let's go back and pick up a little bit of, uh, of history. You recall that, um, that after God had established His people in the land of Canaan, and they were ruled for a period of time by, uh, by judges. Uh, they, these were military leaders uh, who, because of their practice, in that, in that realm were recognized as leaders. They were called judges, but they were really more military leaders. 
that would lead the people in conquest of their oppressors and then would, uh, would, would act as, uh, as kind of the, uh, the de facto ruler. But they weren't called kings. And they weren't really kings until at some point the people wanted kings. And they, uh, and they said as much. We, we want a king to be like the nations around us. First Samuel chapter 8. Well, ultimately they got their kings. And um, initially, uh, the kingdom was united together. It was one nation under Saul, the first king, and then David, and then Solomon. And following Solomon's death, the kingdom divided. Uh, there were ten of, of the twelve tribes that were located in the north part of the land of Canaan. They were called, that, that nation was called Israel. And then in the south, Judah and Benjamin, with Judah being the more dominant, one, uh, they were known as the nation of Judah. So you had the divided kingdom. And this went on for a long time until ultimately the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, which was more wicked than the southern kingdom, they went into captivity first at the hands of the Assyrians. But uh, they lasted a little longer. They had some good kings periodically. Israel didn't have any good kings in the north. Judah, at least periodically, had some good kings, Hezekiah, Josiah, and some others. Uh, those were probably the two best ones. But um, eventually, Judah succumbed to the temptation of idolatry, which was what sent Israel into captivity. Judah followed ultimately, and they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And about six, ultimately, at, at the end, uh, 586 B.C. was when the temple was finally destroyed. Captivity started earlier than that, 606, uh, roughly. And so when Judah went into captivity, because of their idolatry, it had been predicted, prophesied, at Jeremiah that the captivity would last for 70 years. Jeremiah 25, verse 9. And so the 70 years passed, and uh, during that time, toward the end of that time, the Babylonians who had taken Judah captive, they themselves were overthrown by the Persians. The Medes and the Persians really... Uh, the empire is often referred to as the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a conglomeration. The Persians were the more dominant. And the Persians took over. Uh, they, they conquered the Babylonians, and they became the, the dominant world power. Well, when the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, one of the things that, that distinguished the Persians from the Babylonians was the Persians were a little more lenient toward their conquered people and the Persians basically said, any, any conquered people that the Babylonians brought out of their homelands, if you want to go back to your homelands, go ahead. We're not going to stop you. Uh, you know, you, you're going to pay your taxes, right? You're going to make sure that you, know, that you recognize us as the authority. But as far as where you live, we don't care. So if you want to go back to your homelands, your tribal places of your ancestors do that. And so a lot of them did. And a lot of the Jews did, went back. Uh, to Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas to reestablish uh, the land of Judah or Judea. And uh, the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, uh, kind of gives us the history of that first return back to, uh, back to the land of Canaan. So while a lot of them returned under Persian rule, a lot of them didn't. And that's one of the things we need to, to remember is that you know, once they had been once they had been captured and, and brought out of 
Judah and, and dispersed throughout the, the known world at the time, uh, a lot of people didn't have any desire to go back to the, the homeland of their, of their ancestors. Remember when we did, if you were here, we did a sermon not too long ago on the intertestament period. We talked about the importance of the scattering, the, the dispersion of Jewish people in Gentile lands. That's what we're talking about. You know, that, that's, and so even though a lot of them went back, a lot of them didn't. Think about the captivity being 70 years. There were a lot of Jewish people that were born in Gentile territory. They didn't have any personal connection to the land of Canaan. And, and, and many of them probably didn't have any impetus to want to go back there. And so, um, and so a lot of Jews did go back, but a lot of them didn't. A lot of them remained in, in the place that they were, had grown uh, comfortable with. And so what you have in the book of Esther is um, a couple, two of the principal personalities in the book are individuals who did not return back to Jerusalem and the Judean area when they were allowed to do so. Mordecai and Esther are there in the capital city of the Persian Empire, uh, a city called Susa. Uh, some translations, Shushan, uh, but it's, it's the same, uh, same, uh, same word. All right? And so the events in Esther take place mainly, almost, almost exclusively, in the capital city, Susa, during the reign of a king named... Uh, he's called in the biblical text, uh, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Ahasuerus, some say, Ahasuerus, is how I usually say it. Uh, that's, his, that's how his name is spoken in Hebrew. In Greek, it's probably what you recognize from your world history classes back when you were in high school, if you can remember back that far. Xerxes. Xerxes I is the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. And he reigned between 486 and 465 B.C. Now, here's where, this, here's where all this uh, takes place, historically speaking. When the Persians took over in basically 539 uh, B.C., about 536... Cyrus, the king of Persia, made his decree that the people could return. And the first major group that did, did so in 536 B.C. under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. You can read about him in, in the book of Ezra, uh, the, the books of Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, we'll mention him as well. That's when those prophets did their work. That was in 536. There were two more major returns uh, of Jewish people to uh, the land of Canaan. The second one was, in, was under the leadership of Ezra in 457 B.C. And then finally, under Nehemiah, when he took people there to rebuild the wall, was in 444. All right. Now, you're not going to be tested on the dates, but I just want you to see where this fits. So you had 536 B.C., the first return under Zerubbabel, 457 under Ezra, and then 444 under Nehemiah. Okay? The events in the book of Esther take place between the return under Zerubbabel in 536 and the return under Ezra in 457. In between there, 
was when Xerxes, Ahasuerus, reigned between 480 and 465. And that's when these events take place. So it's after the first return, but before Ezra and Nehemiah. Does that make sense historically? All right. So we've got our, we've got our history. The captivity's over. They've been punished because of their idolatry. They were now in the process of returning back to their homeland. Many of them already had. All right. The principal personalities in the book are basically four. I've already mentioned three of them. Uh, Mordecai is, uh, is Esther's cousin who had adopted her when her parents died. That's referenced in Esther chapter 2, verse 7. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. That would make them cousins. For she had father nor mother. Uh, look at the end of the verse. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own. All right. So Esther, of course, is, the, is a young Jewish woman who's living in, in the capital city. Mordecai, her cousin, who had raised her. The third was Xerxes, or Hashiris, the king. He's the king of Persia. And then the fourth major character is a man named Haman. Haman is the second in command to the Persian king, Xerxes. And he's going to play a major role in the book, as we'll see uh, right now, as we talk about the plot. Here's what the book of Esther is about. The story revolves around a Persian law that was enacted by Haman. And the law called for the extermination of all Jewish people anywhere and everywhere. Look in chapter 3, Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, to the governors uh, over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. Uh, it was written with the name of the king. Verse 13, letters were sent. Here it is, 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. All right. Now, we'll, as we go through the book, we'll see what prompts this law to be enacted. But for our purposes now in, in setting up the plot, that's the important thing to remember. This law is enacted that calls for the annihilation of the Jewish people. Now, Mordecai and Esther are going to work to counteract that law and to save themselves and save their people. All right? So that's, that's kind of the surface stuff that's going on in the book. The broader conflict, which is what makes this individual event so important, the broader conflict involves the question of who is ultimately sovereign and whose laws are immutable. Immutable, you know, unchangeable. Okay? Is it Persian law 
that's immutable and unchangeable? Is the king of Persia sovereign? Sovereignty, remember, is the idea of complete authority and control. Is the Persian king sovereign and his law immutable? Or is God sovereign and his law immutable? Because here's the major conflict. The nature of Persian law was such that once a law was put into place, and that law sealed by the signet ring of the king. What a signet ring is, a ring that, uh, uh, that's, that's raised up, uh, you know, it's got a design on it, and, and you'd put wax on a piece of paper, and you'd stick the ring into the wax, and it would make a seal. Like, it's like something being notarized, okay? but, but, you know, more binding. Right? If you had a law sealed with the signet ring of the king, Persian law was that that law, once enacted, could not be repealed. I'll give you some passages that, that illustrate that. Hold your place in Esther and turn over to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. Now Daniel, remember, the, the prophet Daniel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians in, at the first of, of the captivity of the nation of Judah. But he lived throughout the Babylonian rule and even into Persian rule, even after the Persians took over. Daniel 6 is under Persian rule. And, um, but, but not as, he didn't live as far as Xerxes, but early on in Persia. Now, look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 8. This was the law that was enacted about not praying to any other gods or you'd get thrown to the lions. Now, O king, establish the and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Now look down to verse 12, same chapter. End of the verse. The king answered and said, The, the thing stands fast. He's talking about the law. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Verse 15. Same chapter. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. All right, so three places in that one chapter were told about the nature of Persian law. Now you go back to the book of Esther, and you see it a couple of times there. Chapter 1, verse 19. Esther 1, verse 19. If it please the king, let the order go out from him, and let it be written the laws of the Persians and the so that it may not be repealed. And then one more time in chapter 8, verse 8, you have... Uh, you have the same thing. We'll not take time to look at that. But so, what's setting up here is this law goes into effect that all the Jewish people everywhere are to be annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth, and that law, according to the Persians, cannot be re cannot be repealed, can't be changed, it ca it can't be removed from the books. That side. Now, the other side is God. And God made a promise long time before the Persians ever came to be. 
God made a promise that through Abraham's lineage, ultimately, an individual would come into the world that would bless all nations and save the world. Genesis 12, Genesis 22, you have the promise repeated to Isaac and to Jacob. God's made this promise that, that the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, is coming. But at the time these events take place, in the days of the Persians, Messiah hadn't come. God had not fulfilled that promise yet. So that sets up the broad conflict in the book of Esther. Who's immutable? Who is sovereign? Who's going to win? Is Persian law immutable? Or is God sovereign and immutable and is somehow going to annul get past this unchangeable Persian law. Alright? So that's the major conflict in the book. Make sense? Alright. Now, before we... We may not get to chapter 1 tonight. <clears throat> you knew that, didn't you? You knew that going in. Alright, we, we do need to mention some of the difficulties of the book, a couple of them. There are some difficult things about the book of Esther. And the first one is that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Do you realize that? Some people weren't aware of that. That there are ten chapters in the book and God is not mentioned one time, not once. Now that has led some people to question whether or not the book is genuine, whether it needs to be and should be um, included in the canon of Scripture. Well, without going into all the, t the technicalities about you know, the canon and, and all of that, um, let me offer this. Well, it's, it's, for one, the Jewish people always accepted it as, as Scripture, and that ought to tell us something. Because they rejected a lot that you know that weren't, but perhaps just consider this as a possible reason why God's name isn't mentioned in the book. Perhaps the reason is to highlight the very thing that we have been arguing in the first few sessions of this class to highlight what we often refer to as the hidden activity of God in the lives of people, God's providence that God operates in and through the choices that people make, and God can bring about His will by utilizing people's choices, and He can accomplish His will in a, in a behind-the-scenes kind of fashion, that God doesn't have to be always in the forefront and in the open to accomplish His will. And maybe that's why His name is not mentioned specifically in the text, though I... Eve, there are what I call some hidden, uh, well, veiled, be a better term, some veiled uh, references to God, even though His not mentioned. I think some subtle hints uh, of God in the text. Let me give you some examples of those. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 4. Get ahead of ourselves just a little bit. Um, Mordecai 
consistently will refuse to bow down in worship and homage to Haman. Haman's the second in command to the Persian king. Everybody's supposed to bow down to him. Mordecai won't do it. And when they question, when, it, when the people question him about that, chapter 3, verse 4, when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So evidently, whenever Mordecai was questioned, why don't you bow down to Haman? Like he's supposed to, and like everybody else is. His answer to them was, because I'm a Jew. He doesn't mention God specifically, but that seems to be the implication that Haman is getting at. I don't bow down to him because I'm a Jew. What does that mean? Well, because Jews were not allowed to do that. They could only bow down to God in worship. Okay? So there's a veiled hint reference to the, the, the religious nature, at least in this part of his life, of, of Mordecai, a veiled reference perhaps uh, to his uh, allegiance to God. Uh, a couple of other places, chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai uh, is begging do something to try to save her people from annihilation. He's, he's trying to convince her to go in and present herself before the king and plead for her people. And she knows that, that since she wasn't invited by the king, that could result in her death. Here's Mordecai's answer to her. Chapter 4, verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai expressed confidence that even if Esther didn't do anything herself, Mordecai said, deliverance will arise from some other place. He was expressing some level of confidence that, though he didn't use his name, that God would see to it that the people ultimately survived. Though Esther would die herself, but the people would be spared. So again, another possible veiled Reference to God. And then in verse 16, uh, Esther encourages the people to, to hold a fast on her behalf. Before she goes into the king, fasting was almost always connected to and, and done as an expression of devotion to God, a seeking for God's help. Again, God's name's not mentioned, but the fasting is, and it was often connected to God. So I think those are some veiled references to God without actually mentioning God uh, specifically. All right? Now, the second difficulty before we finish tonight is that the character of Mordecai and Esther in the book is not always righteous. Their character is not always in harmony with Old Testament law. I'll give you some examples. In chapter 2, I goes along with and encourages Esther to marry this heathen king, this Persian king. Well, that wasn't allowed. You, you, could, you weren't supposed to do that <laughs> under the law of Moses. But Mordecai encouraged that. Deuteronomy 7, Nehemiah 13, two places where, where it specifically references the fact that this was not God's will. 
that, that the Jewish people intermarry with Gentiles for spiritual reasons, not ethnic ones as such. So that's one thing that, that where you, and the fact that, that Esther goes along with it. Look in chapter 2 also for another instance of questionable activity. Chapter 2, when, when, when Xerxes is electing a new queen, the process by which that was going to happen involved a, a gathering of virgins from all over the empire. These virgins are brought to the, the palace and placed in a harem. And then each one of them would take a turn, go into the king, spend the night with the king, and the next morning the woman would be placed not back in the harem of virgins, but in the harem of concubines. And the king was going to pick for a queen the woman who pleased him the most. Now, it doesn't take the wisdom of Solomon to figure out what was taking place overnight. Okay? And again, this is Jewish woman, Gentile pagan king, but this was the process by which the queen was going to be selected. There's no indication that, neither, that either Mordecai or Esther protested any of this. They went along with the process. Mordecai tells Esther on two occasions to keep her Jewishness, her Jewish ethnicity, and thereby her relationship with the God of heaven a secret. Don't tell them your ethnicity. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 20. We mentioned Esther being fully involved in the preparation process for becoming one of the king's concubines. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 talks about that, which included special food. Now, since she was hiding her Jewishness, and since Gentiles had no dietary restrictions... She would have eaten whatever food was given to her. Unlike Daniel and his friends, when in a similar situation, refused it. So, Esther and Mordecai do some things in the course of these events that are not praiseworthy. Okay. Now, having said that, any any mere human being that God has ever used to accomplish His purposes was a human being guilty of sin. Jesus, of course, was not a mere human being. He was human. He was fully man, but He was God in the flesh. Take Him out of the equation. Anybody that God has ever used to accomplish any purpose of His has been guilty of sin. So I'm not, I'm not beating up on Mordecai and Esther. I'm just pointing out the obvious. They weren't perfect people. They made choices that weren't in harmony with the will of God. But God can use, has used, individuals throughout history 
that were not always people that, that lived in harmony with His will. And He used them to accomplish His purposes. God even used abjectly wicked people to accomplish His purposes. Jeremiah 25, 9, a passage we mentioned earlier that references the, the length of the captivity in Babylon, 70 years. That same passage refers to the king who would initiate that captivity. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And God says in that passage that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Those were God's words about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, will take the people captive for 70 years. Did he mean by that that Nebuchadnezzar was holy, uh, righteous, living in harmony with, with God's will for him? No, none of that was true. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king. Well, in what sense was he God's servant? Well, in the sense that he was going to help bring about the, the completion of God's will. It was God's will that his people go into captivity for their sin. Nebuchadnezzar was going to help that happen. And so in that sense, he was the son of God. Um, in Isaiah chapter 5, God will refer to the nation of Assyria as the rod of his anger. In other words, I'm going to use Assyria to, to, to punish my people. They're, they're doing my will. So God has, God has often used people who were imperfect. He always used people who were imperfect. But he often used people who were, who were outright wicked to accomplish his will. I put Mordecai and Esther not in the category of abject wickedness, but in the category of people who didn't always make right choices. People who sinned. But he could still and would still use them. But you're also going to see events or, or instances where Mordecai and Esther do things that are commendable, that, that do show um, a, a sense of, of, of righteousness and a sense of reliance on God. And so you're going to see good from them too. I just hope I just want us to see that there's that 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 there's a balance, and and that that is uh, for some problematic in the book that Esther did this and that Mordecai did some of the things that he did, but they are the heroes of the story, not because they were perfect people. They're the heroes of the story because they are the principal players in the events that lead to the preservation of Abraham's lineage. But their specific actions were not always right in and of themselves. Does that make sense? All right. I said Isaiah 5 earlier. It's Isaiah chapter 10, where um, God mentions using uh, Assyria as the rod of his anger. Um, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6 is another example of that. Uh, you remember that Habakkuk was the prophet who looked around in Judah before Judah went into captivity, but they were already wicked and idolatrous. And Habakkuk said, God, uh, essentially, paraphrasing Habakkuk, he said, God, how can you not do anything about this? I look around and all I see is wickedness and violence. Why aren't you doing something? And God's answer to Habakkuk was, I am doing something. You're just not aware of it. And if I told you everything I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. But he, then he said in verse 6 of chapter 1, he said, Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. A bitter and hasty nation. 
And I'm going to use them as the rod of punishment on my people. So God is saying, I'm going to use, I'm going to use this wicked nation. And that bothered Habakkuk. He said, well, wait just a minute. Yeah, we're wicked. But the Babylonians are a whole lot more wicked than we are. How can you use the, 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 the greater wickedness to punish the lesser wickedness? And God said, yes, I got this under control. I'm going to take care of Babylon when the time's right for that. They're, in other words, they're not going to escape judgment either. It's just that I'm going to use them to people first, and then I'll take care of the Babylonians in due time. God said, I got this all under control. <laughs> you just trust me and leave it to me. So all of that goes back to this concept of sovereignty. God's working out His will in the world by utilizing individuals, nations, kings, and others. So, uh, those are some of the difficulties with the book, uh, but they're not, they're not insurmountable. Uh, there are legitimate explanations for them. Alright? Clear as mud? Okay. Alright, we're out of time tonight. <laughs> Next week, I hope we get into chapter 1. There's no reason why we can't get into chapter 1 next week. And then we'll uh, make our way through the book. Thank you much. I appreciate it. You listen well.